0: One week season. What is going on, Inner Circle Fam? JM to win here. Welcome to a little bonus track for week one. This might be something you want to bookmark as there will be some things we'll talk about in here, as with a lot of my inner circle sessions that aren't directly specific to that particular week, but that will help you not only in that week, but in other weeks around it. So what I wanted to talk about today is how we get to a player pool. So each of us is going to have different processes because each of our minds work in a unique way. The way that I go about building my player pool might ultimately end up being different than the way you go about building your player pool or a different contributor on OWS goes about building their player pool. But I wanted to walk through my process, my approach to building my player pool, especially now that I'm no longer writing the the game level elements in the NFL Edge. And so my process then becomes more similar to your process. And what I mean by that is in the in the past, over the last few years, if I said, well, I do these things on these days, that also included doing an enormous amount of manual research for the NFL Edge, which not only is something that you wouldn't want to do necessarily, but also not something you would need to do because you're on one week season. You can read the NFL edge and in about an hour and a half to two hours, pick up those 20, 25, 30 hours worth of research. Now, one of the things that I'm replacing that with is going back to something I used to be able to do, which is watching every single game on Sunday night and throughout the day on Monday. So for me, this allows me to have a clearer sense of what the game on the field looks like for each of these teams, how each of these coaches call games, how these players are deployed. But again, this is not something that you need to be doing yourself. If you find that you have the time and it's enjoyable for you and it's valuable to you, then certainly do it. And that enjoyable and valuable is sort of something you should be looking at in all of this, because if DFS isn't enjoyable, you could find other enjoyable ways to make money. It's something we've talked about on OWS before that what we're ultimately building toward here isn't turning you into people who can play DFS professionally full-time so much as turning you into people who can If you don't want to be tied to a nine-to-five job, you can say, okay, I can make some money in DFS, I can make some money doing this, I can make some money doing that, and understand that you can tap into that level of freedom to sort of creatively structure your schedule and do what you want to do. I mean, Hilo, for example, has his hands in like five, six, seven different things, but he said when he got out of the Navy or got out of active duty, he didn't want to be tied down to a desk job. He knew that, and so he's just carved out different spaces for himself to make money, sort of decide what his, the shape of his life, the shape of his week looks like. And ultimately that's the goal is positioning yourself to be able to do that. So if you're doing DFS stuff and it's not enjoyable for you, find a different way that you can approach it that makes it more enjoyable. Because sure, you want to hit that finish line of that huge first place finish But there's also, there are steps along the way that you have to go through. There's all these processes to understand how to build those types of rosters and then to build those types of rosters and then to have that weekend where it it finally all comes together and hits. And if you're not enjoying those 50, 100 steps along the way, then you're going to have this one big Sunday. That's awesome, but you've spent whatever it is, a year, two years, and all this time invested that's felt like a job just to get there. So again, find the things that work for you, the things that make this enjoyable because part of this is one of the questions that we got on Twitter this week when I was doing a Twitter takeover was a mindset-related question. And my answer was, make sure you have a space in the front end of your week where you're consciously turning the page to the next week. And then Zandemir came through and also answered to say, you know, take a walk, go to the, get in, get in the hot tub, do something that takes you out of the head down, deep in the research or the stats or whatever mindset, and find a way to sort of separate from that and recognize that, hey, there's a different level of thinking here that if we're getting too close to things and we're too focused on finding the exact right play and drilling as deep into the numbers as we can, thinking that we can figure everything out. That prevents us from seeing the bigger picture, which is, look, there's so much uncertainty in DFS, there's so much uncertainty in a single NFL game that what we're really trying to do is zoom out a little bit and figure out how to take advantage of the uncertainty that exists, take advantage of the fact that most of the people we're competing against are so focused on getting everything right that they're not accounting for the uncertainty. And then figure out the creative approach that we want to take to try to outmaneuver the field that particular week. So again, whatever I say in here, there might be some things that fit for you. There might be some things that don't fit for you. In fact, uh, Mike Johnson and I were texting today about I was on Blender's pod yesterday, if you're listening to this down the road. And we were talking about how, you know, Blender says that he puts in about two hours building his rosters every week. And in his mind, that's really the only DFS work that he does. And, you know, he listens to podcasts all week long, probably 30, 40 hours worth of podcasts throughout the week. And he does that in order to get a sense of how the field is thinking and all that. But to him, that's not work because that's something he enjoys doing. I don't really enjoy listening to podcasts that much. So if I were listening to 30 or 40 hours worth of podcasts throughout the week, that would feel to me like 30 or 40 hours worth of work. So again, Figure out what makes the most sense for you and what helps you to develop a strong player pool and have confidence going into the slate. So one last note here before we get to sort of how I approach things after the game watching uh, point in the week. We say all the time that DFS is not about knowing who the good plays are. So why the focus on player pool? Well, while DFS is not about knowing who the good plays are, or in other words, just knowing who the good plays are, isn't going to get you that first place finish. There are sort of two foundations from which we need to build our DFS play. And one of those foundations is an understanding of what the game of DFS is and how to actually play the game of DFS, which obviously is a large part of what we're focused on in Inner Circle. And the other part is making sure that you're playing that game with good players. Furthermore, if you build your player pool, I'll say the right way, and as we always talk about, there's no one right way to do these things, right? But the way that it would be recommended for almost any personality. If you do that, you're going to naturally uncover plays that you like, and then you find out that they're going to be low owned plays. You're also going to find plays that you think, yeah, this is a pretty good play. Like I like this play. This plays in my player pool. And then you go look at ownership later in the week and the guy's projected at 25 or 30% owned. And you're able to then assess independent of ownership, how you actually felt about that player. So this is critically important because going back to Blender. So one of the things that he and I were talking about on the podcast is this thought that you can know nothing nothing about the NFL and that you can be great at DFS. That You can know nothing about the DFS sport that you're playing and be great at DFS. If you're listening to this podcast during NFL season, you probably know a lot about the NFL already. So you can take these DFS theories and components and apply them to a different sport where you don't know a lot. But what's interesting here is Blender's coming from a perspective of somebody who stopped playing fantasy sports in 2003, somebody who didn't pay attention to sports between that point and the point when he got into DFS in 2015. Uh, I use the example of Beep, I'm a Jeep from time to time, but Beep, I'm a Jeep, again, national board game champion, but doesn't have a deep foundation of knowing all of the teams and players or any of the teams and players, and instead comes at DFS from a game and strategy standpoint. It's significantly more difficult for you to do that if you've been in sports, in the NFL, watching ESPN, playing fantasy sports for the last decade. You have biases already. And so part of what we have to do is find ways to break some of those biases, find ways to tap into what these, quote, game players are able to tap into, while finding the places where our knowledge gives us an additional edge, but not starting from that point where our knowledge ends up blocking us from being able to correctly play the game. So again, independent thought and coming to your player pool on your own allows you to then look at ownership projections and be sort of shocked in places where you're surprised that a player is coming in at such low ownership, you're surprised that a player is coming in at such high ownership. Given what we talked about in the first live session, I'll say yesterday because it was yesterday, but you might be listening to this weeks down the road. So the first live session that was week one of the 2021 season. And we spent some time talking about how ownership in the DFS industry is created. It's something I've talked about from time to time, but that was sort of the most specific I got on it. So to summarize really quickly, there are lots of DFS players getting their thoughts and information from lots of different sources. But if we look for a central point for these sources, a central point for these sources is often Establish the Run. We'll we'll say it like that. It's, it's Sylvan Levitan. So before Sylvan Levitan launched Establish the Run, when Levitan was kind of bouncing around different places, primarily at labs, but also doing stuff in different places and doing stuff on Twitter Silva was at Roto World. Those were the two people that people were paying attention to. So if you're a full-time DFS content provider and player, and you're still playing MLB through late September or even into October for playoffs, and then NBA tips off in mid-October and you're focused on that, you're not doing a ton of NFL research. So you're getting a lot of your knowledge and information about the teams, the players, the likelihood of a player succeeding in a particular matchup. You're getting a lot of that from reading other people. And for most of these content providers, the quote, other people they're reading and paying attention to are Levitan and Silva. In fact, I can't tell you how many people have said, I subscribe to OWS and ETR. I subscribe to ETR primarily to get a sense of where the chalk is going to be. Now, I'll also take a step back and and for fairness sake and say, uh, and you guys know I have an enormous amount of respect for Levitan. He's one of the sharpest guys out there. And uh, with Dink and Leon at, at ETR, they have extraordinary guys to focus on the strategy aspects as well. But my point is, that is where chalk sort of gets created, is what is Levitan talking about? What is Silva talking about? Then you have all these other people who are reading them. They start sort of echoing those thoughts. And so the guy who is the best play, as we talked about yesterday, because that's what Levitan is sharp at, is finding the most optimal play for those cash game rosters. So the guy who is the best play, but is maybe only 5% better than this next play and 7% better than this next play, ends up becoming the play that everybody feels is such a smashed play that it ends up being 25% owned or 30% owned in tournaments. Flip that around and the guy who's you know slightly less good of a play might be 5% owned. And so when you're doing your research independent of, or I should say creating your player pool independent of the groupthink, it enables you to find the players who you like for your player pool and to then compare that against what everybody else is thinking. And you get these great little surprises where it's like, oh wow, everyone is way higher on this guy than I expected them to be or way lower on this guy than I expected them to be. And without that understanding of how that chalk gets formed, it can be easy to say, what am I what am I missing? What am I getting wrong? And to be scared to not have this super highly owned piece. But once you recognize that, okay, yeah, like maybe this super highly owned piece is a little bit better than this low owned piece I'm considering, that's fine. We're talking about tournaments. It's also fine if that high owned piece smashes and you don't have him because we're talking about tournaments. We're talking about playing the numbers. We're talking about putting the numbers into our favor over a large sample size so that over time we know we're going to be making money in DFS. So even if the guy who's 30% owned were twice as likely to have a big game as the guy who's 5% owned, the guy who's 5% owned is still one-sixth the ownership of that guy who is 30% owned. That 5% ownership up to 30% ownership is basically like saying, if we played out this slate 100 times, this one guy would outscore the other guy 86 times (laughs) And this other guy, would, would the guy who's 5% owned, would outscore this guy 14 times. 13 times, somewhere in that range. And typically, you can look at things you know, critically and just say, well, that's obviously not true in this situation. Like I was, before looking at ownership, I knew that this guy was a little bit better of a play, but I wasn't entirely sure. And so what tends to happen for a lot of DFS players is they let that confirmation bias of the ownership tell them, okay, so this guy is the better play, I'll play this guy. Instead of saying, okay, well, now I know that this guy is probably the better play. The guy who's 30% owned is probably the better play. But I also know that I'm gaining a big edge if this other guy is as low owned as he's going to be. Now flip that around and if you're close on on two guys and the, the guy who you're leaning toward You're pretty sure he's the slightly better play and he's the one who's lower owned. Well, then it just makes it even stronger of a case for you to play that guy. So how do I end up with these player pools where I can be surprised by ownership projections later in the week? Skip over the part where I'm watching games. My process, and and this is all centered around OWS, so it allows you to kind of take some of this, find out what from this makes sense for you and makes sense for your process and what fits into your schedule and so on and so forth. So the first thing that I want to do, so for me in my process for 2021, this is throughout the day on Tuesday and then rolling into Wednesday on my end, I am going to think through every game on the slate. And I want to think through how each team tries to win their games so one of the examples that we used this week is the Vikings and Bengals are playing and we talked about how if the Vikings have a lead they proved to us last year they proved to us in the past they've proved to us through what Mike Zimmer has said if the Vikings have a lead there are going to be some games if they're just dominating a game there are going to be some games where they only throw the ball 10 times 12 times 15 times 18 times 20 times They're not a team that that is going to throw the ball 35 or 40 times if they're in control of the game. So starting right there from that understanding, we can say, okay, the Vikings are a better team than the Bengals. For me, I don't look at the over-under yet or the game total yet, but that would be perfectly fine if you wanted to do that, especially because one of the reasons I don't is because I've spent over a half decade, like up to my neck in (laughs) stats and information about all these teams and and how they like to win games and what their blitz rate is and what their coverage schemes are and what their route trees and combinations look like. And fast-forwarding to this year, getting back to being able to watch all the games and understanding what these teams look like as a unit on the field as far as how they're piecing things together in an effort to win a football game. So you might not have all of that knowledge or feel as comfortable just saying like, okay, let me just eyeball this game and blindly come up with how each team is going to try to win this game. So maybe for you, looking at the Vegas over under, looking at the implied team totals helps you to say, okay, the Vikings, we, we know that the Vikings like to run the ball. The Vikings are expected to be playing with a lead in this game. They're they're favored in this game by a large amount enough that that it seems likely that they're going to win. To get some extra context on this, you can always go to the Advanced Odds tool on OWS. You can go to the Advanced Odds tool and you can click Line History, which shows you where the line has moved throughout the week. You can also, though, you can see the probability of a team winning based on the Vegas line. And I, I don't know what other factors go into it, but basically you can see like just a quick snapshot of oh, this team's 68% likely to win this game. Now, keep in mind what 68% means. 68% means 68 times out of 100. So there's still 32 times, and that's, that's huge, but there's still 32 times in this scenario where you could say, well, this other team could also win this game 32 times out of 100. And what does that mean for the way that this game would play out? How many of the people I'm competing against in the tournament field size I'm playing in are thinking about this other scenario that still would happen a third of the time and is there a very clear way to build around this scenario? But thinking through the games, there are some ways that you can sort of get some pointers on how to direct your thoughts. So the, the game total, the amount of team is favored by, their probability of winning that game can help you get a sense. And then you can start thinking about, okay, so the Vikings, if they're in control of this game, they're going to be running the ball. Even if they fall behind, like, it's unlikely that they're just abandoning the run. A lot of times people think in very narrow terms. It's like, well, if this team falls behind, they're going to be passing a lot. Watch, watch games. And I say this a lot, but as you watch games, watch them actively. Pay attention to how NFL games actually play out. We get these thoughts in our mind on Tuesday or Wednesday when we're looking at articles and spreadsheets that make it all seem very straightforward. But Typically, if a team falls behind by 14 points in the first quarter, they don't change anything in the way they're calling that game. They're going to keep their run-pass ratio similar. They're going to keep attacking on first down the way that they attack on first down. Even they can be down 17 points. It's not until you really get into the second half or you know, if, you're, if a team's down by two scores heading toward halftime and they have the ball, they're going to be a little bit more aggressive than they would be you know, maybe with a seven-point lead or a 10-point lead. But it's not as if a team falls behind and suddenly everything changes in that game. So understand what you are building these scenarios around. The Vikings take a lead. Okay, they're probably throwing the ball 22, 23 or fewer times if they control this game throughout. The Vikings fall behind. Okay, they're still probably only throwing 25, 26 times unless they fall way behind or unless the Bengals are still controlling the game in the second half but even just the simple things that you pick up from accumulated knowledge, from reading the NFL Edge, from listening to other stuff on OWS, from reading the player grid every week, you have a good base and foundation of knowledge that once you combine that with the, the Vegas total for the game, the over the uh, implied team totals for the game, you can spend 10, 15 minutes and have a very clear sense of what's likeliest to happen in that game, how this game is likeliest to play out, And the great thing about this is this is early week stuff. This isn't the stuff that you're going to be building your rosters off of. You just want to have a sense for yourself so that when you go in there to build, you have that comfort level that you're not just taking something two-dimensional that somebody else typed up and that you read, but that it's been made a little bit more three-dimensional for you because you've actually tried to visualize how this game plays out, what each team is going to be doing. Now, the more you do this, the more comfort you're going to get with this, because you can see, like, getting to these raw numbers, demystifying the slate for yourself, you can see, if you say Kirk Cousins throws 26 times, and we know that the tight ends aren't heavily involved on the Vikings, especially with Irv Smith now out, we know that the number three receiver is not going to be heavily involved on the Vikings. We know that the running backs aren't super heavily involved in the pass game, but you still can say, okay, well, like what, Dalvin Cook gets four targets in this scenario, and you got to at least give another four or five targets to the tight end and the number three receiver. Then you have to account for some throwaways, and all of a sudden you're down to, what, like 14 targets available left for Thielen and Jefferson, even if everything sort of breaks their way. What you'll also find is we will tend to give more credit than we should be giving to a player's likelihood of getting the the targets that we want them to get. So if we're focused on Jefferson and Thielen, it's easy to be like, okay, yeah, two targets to the tight ends, two to the number three receiver, three or four to Dalvin Cook, that still leaves 18 targets left for these two guys. And then you watch the game play out and they combine for 12 targets, 11 targets. So accumulated knowledge over time helps you to understand more how these targets get distributed on different teams, but also recognize like you're looking, we want to be thinking negative when our tendency is to think positive. And we want to think positive when our tendency is to think negative. Not that we need to change our thoughts on a spot, but we want to say, okay, what is the flip side of this? What if what if things don't go the way that I want them to go in this spot or expect them to go in this spot? So if you can say, basically like, okay, I've calculated about 14 targets being left for Jefferson and Thielen. And I'm trying to come up with a scenario in which I could play one of these guys. So really, it might be more like 11 or 12 targets for these guys. That helps you to put raw numbers on things. Like I was thinking last night about Trevor Lawrence in week one and thinking about the scenarios that would allow him to have a big game against Houston. And then I was thinking, well, what are the chances that he throws more than 30 passes if they control this game? What are the chances that Urban Meyer is going to call on him to throw 35, 38 passes if they control this game. So then if you get down to 30 passes and then you start divvying up where those targets go, you start to recognize, oh, it's pretty hard to paint a picture of any one player getting more than seven or eight targets unless there's some sort of outlier setup that forces targets to congregate on one particular player on a team where we would have a hard time even describing which player that would necessarily be. So again, all of this is how how you start to get closer and closer to a player pool that you feel comfortable with is that you're able to describe where these points are coming from. You're able to not just say, okay, I think this guy's going to have a good game. But as we talked about yesterday, not just I think this guy is going to have a good game, but what does that good game look like? How many catches? How many yards? How many touchdowns? And then from there, you can say, okay, but how many times is this Quarterback actually passing in this game scenario that I'm coming up with, and how likely is it that this player actually gets the 10, 11 targets I'm penciling him in for? Right, all of this is going to make it much easier for you to see the slate with some nuance, to see all the gray area in the slate instead of this sort of binary thought process that most of our competition has that's like, oh, this guy's gonna have a huge game or this guy's gonna bomb in this spot. There's a lot of middle ground between those two outcomes and understanding where that middle ground lies and how that middle ground is created can help us enormously. So for me, Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm going through all the games in my mind and I'm going game by game and I'm not necessarily dedicating a huge amount of time or attention. One of the things that I do like to do when I'm thinking through games is allow room for creativity one of the ways in which I do that, so I talked about th- that idea that Zandermeer talked about, like go for a walk, get in the hot tub, right? Because once you kind of dive down into the numbers, your are sh- thinking shifts. Your thinking shifts over to this side of, okay, let me pin down some sort of certainty on this. So what I do is if I'm thinking through the game and there's something I don't know, I will just make a note to myself to look that up later. That way I'm not jumping back and forth between a screen and my thoughts. Instead, I can, I could be doing this while driving. I've done this on, especially before I was writing. Well, I I started writing the NFL Edge in 2015, but it didn't get super, super intense until 2016 and especially 2017. So early on when I was playing NFL DFS, Abby and I would be traveling. Like I remember one time we drove up into the mountains in Denver one day and we were walking around and I was thinking through that week's Slate, uh, 2015, any of you who've been with me since then, uh, I was in Asia the first five, six weeks of the season in Thailand and Nepal. Like I wasn't tied to a computer throughout those days, but I'm just thinking through the slate in my head, how is this game likely to play out? I remember it was week one and I was sitting on the front of a, of a boat in Thailand and just thinking through the Packers game for that week. Not trying to pin down any firm answers, but just making sure that I have a comfort level with that game and making sure that a year from now, I'll be even better at thinking through these games. Two years from now, three years from now, I'll have an even higher level of comfort in thinking through these games. Those little edges that you keep adding in, they accumulate over time to where it becomes one big edge. A couple of years from now, you can think through a game and you have a much sharper understanding of how that game is likeliest to play out than most of the people you're going to be competing against. So I think through the games from a sort of macro level. How is this team likeliest to attack this team? What is this team good at? What is this team bad at? What does the shape of this game sort of look like? The goal for me is not to come up with super concrete answers. The goal for me is not to decide who I'm playing that week, not even to decide who's in my player pool, but just to sort of run through things that first time, that second time, and start getting a sense of what the slate looks like, what the players look like, and being able to start putting these things together in my mind. The next thing I do is I read the matchups tab for the NFL Edge. I might do this game by game. I might read matchups and then the NFL Edge write-up, or I might read all the matchups and then go back and read through all of the NFL Edge write-ups. But Either way, I'm reading the matchups tab next, and what that allows me to do is get a snapshot of some of the more player-specific matchup elements and some of the coaching tidbits that can help me as I start making decisions on my player pool moving deeper into the week. So I read through the matchups. Every once in a while, I'll I'll jot down a little thought, but I'm just wanting to get a sense of some of the extra information that can help me in my decision-making moving forward. Then I read through the NFL Edge game write-up. I do this, whether I was writing up the game or somebody else was writing up the game. And for me, it varies. Sometimes I take notes in the game notes function at the bottom of the game. I think we, we really emphasized that game notes function the first year in 2018. And then we kind of stopped talking about it. And I think a lot of people sort of forgot that it's there. But you can save your game notes and they all go to your profile page and they're all grouped by week. So you can save all your notes for week one And then you go to your profile page and they're all organized there for you. All of your week one notes gathered together into one spot. So that's down where OWS Collective is. But if you click save note and don't make it public, it just goes to your profile page and you can sort of keep track of all your notes from the games on that week. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I I use uh, a note in my phone and just have, you know, it's a week one note and game by game, and I jot down, you know, kind of just the players. I'm not jotting down any additional thoughts. I'm just jotting down the players that I'm pulling from this game. And I'll typically try to start organizing them at that point. So I'll read through the NFL edge. As I read through it, I try to be aware of cognitive biases that can be formed from the first games I'm reading. In other words, the first few games you're gonna find little things that you're like, oh, this is pretty sharp. Like nobody's gonna be thinking about this. And then as you get into your reading your eighth or ninth game, if you're keeping an open mind, you can start realizing, okay, compared to all the other games on this slate, that super sharp thought that I uncovered from the first or second game is still probably negative EV. Good for me for uncovering it, but given what else is available on this slate, that's probably not where I wanna go. It's easy to find that that sort of play and decide that you're going to do it early in the week. What we want to do is just keep collecting information for as long as we can. We don't have to make decisions on who's going on a roster yet at this point. We're just trying to get a sense of who's in a good spot, who's in a good game environment, and who has a chance to put up the type of score, not a good score, the type of score that can help you win a tournament. Remember, the higher price to player is, we don't even have to think about ownership yet. The higher price to player is the higher the score he needs to get in order to justify that. I think this is something that gives us a big edge because so much of our competition, they're happy rostering this 8K, 9K guy and they're not thinking about how that salary actually relates to the output. They get 20, 22 points, 25 points and they're not that disappointed. Well, if you get 25 points from a guy you spent 9K for, you're probably not winning a tournament that week. So again, uh, we'll keep talking about this all year, all next year, but you're thinking about what can actually help you win a tournament. So go through the games, recognize that there's nuance here. It's not like you're going to find 20 guys who you feel massively confident are going to win you a tournament that week. You're just trying to get a sense of who has that type of potential. You're reading the NFL edge and paying close attention. I know a lot of people take intense notes in a notebook or in their game notes or in a phone note or whatever while reading the NFL Edge. Other people don't take any notes. So regardless of where you fall on this, pull out the players as you go through so that you start getting a sense of... So for me, I don't take intense notes on the NFL Edge. Uh, Obviously, when I was writing it, that would have been less necessary as well. But for me, I'm going to remember why I'm pulling out the players I'm pulling out. I've already thought through these games. I know these teams. So once you start pulling out these players, you can start getting a sense of how these players stack up against each other for your player pool. So to give you an example of what this might look look like for me, when I was reading through that Vikings and Bengals game, I pulled out Dalvin Cook because obviously if the Vikings win... They're in a great matchup for Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook is likely to be given a lot of carries. We know he has high touchdown upside. So I'm not thinking about strategy yet. I'm not thinking about price tag yet. I'm just pulling out Dalvin Cook. We want good plays across our roster. We don't want to roster a guy just because he's 3K and saves us a bunch of salary. And maybe he has a solid game. Maybe he gets us 14, 15 points. We want to be able to pull out players who we feel really good about as a player and then every once in a while, we'll look at pricing and be like, oh, wow, this guy's underpriced compared to where I thought he would be. Or you get to a guy and you're like, oh, well, he's this expensive and he's going to be this popular. Okay, let me, let me add this new information. But at this point for me in my process, I'm not thinking about any of that yet. I'm just wanting to get a sense of who the good plays are on the slate. So I pull out Dalvin Cook and then underneath Dalvin Cook, I do a, a tab or a little hyphen or whatever, and I put in the three Bengals wide receivers, Tyler Boyd, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, to let me know like these guys are not guys that I'm focused on as a starting point from this game, but these are guys who would pair well with Dalvin Cook because if this game plays out in such a way that Dalvin Cook gets me a tournament-winning score, if Dalvin Cook gets me 40 points, 35 points, that means that the Vikings are dominating this game on the scoreboard that means that Dalvin Cook is getting a lot of touches, he's scoring touchdowns, and that means that the Bengals who already like to throw the ball are throwing the ball more. That means that there are a lot of available targets for these three guys. That's where we say, okay, let's calculate targets. Let's get Burrow up to 40 pass attempts in this scenario. And let's say let, let's let's go wild, right? Let's say CJ Uzoma gets 5 targets, let's say Mixon gets 6. Let's say there's a couple throwaways and maybe two targets that go to somebody we're not even expecting or thinking about. Well, even with that, we still have around 25 targets left to play with. And you can look at, you know, for me, I'm not looking at the price tags yet on these guys. What's great about this type of process is once I saw that all three of these guys were priced under 5k, it was like, oh, wow, these, (laughs) this is like, this is great, right? These guys are significantly underpriced if you say 25 targets spread out to three guys that doesn't mean that this is necessarily definitely going to happen but it means hey we feel pretty comfortable that if dalvin cook gets me a tournament winning score there's a pretty good chance that there's also 25 targets bringing spread out to these three guys that's an average of 8.3 targets per player which means almost certainly one of them is getting 9 10 11 targets Even if they're all getting eight targets at under 5K, that's tremendous. And we talk about accumulated knowledge over time. There's also this accumulated knowledge over the span of the week. So we've started out, we've already thought through this game. We kind of went through uh, earlier how we would be thinking through this game on Tuesday and or Wednesday on my end. And then we get to the NFL edge and we're actually pulling out the players. And then now that we're pulling these guys out, we challenge it and say, okay, like, if Dalvin Cook gets a tournament winning game, what does this actually mean on the Bengals side? And then we kind of think through it and we say, okay, well, that that's a lot of pass attempts that are getting spread around and they're not going to that many different guys. And so we feel pretty good that all these guys are underpriced. We feel that, or I guess I'm not looking at pricing yet, but we we feel pretty good that all of these guys are in a good spot. We feel pretty good that they all relate well to Dalvin Cook in this spot. And so I'm just going to, for now, pull these guys out. I'm going to have Dalvin Cook. I'm going to have... Under like listed, attached to him with hyphens or bullet points or whatever, uh, these three Bengals wide receivers. I'm aware that there's another game flow scenario here, but it's not super likely, so I'm not pulling anything else out from this game just yet. I might make a note in parentheses that just says Mixon slash Vikings wide receiver to remind myself that, hey, there's another scenario that I could play here if I wanted to mess around with things. That if this game plays out differently, this is the other way to take advantage of that. But also, we're recognizing that, sure, Dalvin Cook, let's say he's 20-30% owned. Well, the example we used yesterday was, if Dalvin Cook is 30% owned, but Jamar Chase is 5% owned, if Jamar Chase is on 500 out of 10,000 rosters, then the question is, how many of these Jamar Chase rosters, 500 rosters, also have Dalvin Cook, what, maybe 150, maybe 200? So now you recognize, look, I can play Dalvin Cook at 30% ownership because if I play him with Jamar Chase, I'm kind of building this 2% owned or 1.5% owned setup of Cook plus Jamar Chase. So you don't have to branch into that alternate game flow scenario. You're already lowering your ownership with the most obvious way for this game to play out. And especially in tournaments where you're needing to to beat 10,000 or fewer rosters, that's totally fine. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't bet on the alternate game flow scenario, but it just means you can take this and be pretty happy that you've created some differentiation. You've found a way to capture this Dalvin Cook score better than your competition is capturing this Dalvin Cook score. And you've already created one sort of low owned block on your roster that makes a lot of sense, that works really well together, that has a high probability of hitting if Dalvin Cook hits. And so you really only need to find... One or maybe two other spots on your roster to really do something that differentiates you from everybody else. So you don't have to go to this alternate game flow scenario. You never have to mess around with it in a spot like this because you've already found a way to lower your ownership on the most obvious way for this game to play out. So now I've thought through all the games on Tuesday and Wednesday. I've read through the matchups. I've read through the NFL edge. I've read through every game. And pulled the players that I like. Now, one of the things that I typically do is I'll read three or four games and then do something else for a little while. Read another three or four games, do something else for a little while. If I try to sit there and read 13 games in one sitting, unless I'm just in a really good groove, I'm typically gonna find my mind being, you know, basically my mind wearing down and paying less attention and I'm less sharp in the decisions that I'm making. So Feel free to kind of turn this into a process. Throughout Thursday and Friday, you can go through these games and just gradually pull out the players that you want to pull out. As we also talked about yesterday, you should have a consistent approach to what you're playing. So for me, knowing that I'm going to focus on three entry max for at least the first seven or eight weeks of this season, for me, I've, you know, I've enjoyed doing something a little bit different each year While I've had OWS because it allows me to think through new ways to play new tournaments and pass that on to you guys. So, some of you play 20 entry max. So, when I was focused on mini multi entry, I was able to share a lot of things that I wasn't able to share when I was playing single entry because the mindsets are different. This year, I'll be focused on three entry max for at least the first half of the season, and that allows me to think through three entry max strategies and pass those along. For you, it might be the same thing every year. The main thing is not to have a different approach one week to the next, to the next, to the next. Okay, this week I'm playing the Millie Maker. This week I'm playing the Wildcat with two rosters. And this week I'm playing a single-entry tournament with only 500 rosters that I have to beat. Like, find the tournaments you want to focus on. As I mentioned before lots of times, in the DraftKings lobby, if you scroll down past, like, all the featured contests... There are a ton of great bankroll-building contests, contests that for any buy-in level, for $7, for $12, for $333, that are smaller field tournaments with less top-heavy payout structures. Those million-dollar-to-first-place tournaments, that's great marketing. That's why it's up at the top of the lobby. But that's also one where if you don't get first place, if you get second place out of 200,000 entries, you're... The difference between that and first place is ridiculous. If you get fifth place, which you're still beating 200,000 entries to get fifth place, you, you might as well not have been playing the Millie Maker. So if you get below those marketing contests, those flashy contests at the top, you can start finding these contests where, yeah, first place isn't life-changing. But also, if, you, if you're if you competing against 500 people, that allows you to go with like a much more sane strategy that you might be much more comfortable with given either personality or where you're at in your DFS journey or where you're at bankroll-wise. And you can try to beat 500 rosters. And if you beat 493 rosters instead of 500, you're still getting a really nice payout. So that first place prize isn't as extraordinary because it's a smaller field and it's a less top-heavy payout structure, but it also allows you to attack the top 1% of the of the leaderboards, the top 5% of the leaderboards, and still get a nice payout even if you don't get that first place finish on that particular week. So know what types of contests you're building for and know that before you're getting to this point where all your players are pulled out and you start figuring out what your player pool is going to look like. The size of your player pool, the shape of your player pool, the types of players in your player pool are going to be different if you're playing... 20 rosters versus three rosters. It's going to be different if you're needing to beat 200,000 rosters versus needing to beat a 1,000 rosters. It's Frankly, it's going to be different if it's a massively top-heavy payout structure or a, a less extreme drop-off from first place to 10th place, for example. So know what tournaments you're planning to focus on and optimally... Come up with what you want to focus on for the next two months, at least. And then you can start building a strategy around how you want to attack those tournaments. When, when I was doing that Wildcat thing in 2019, the first couple of weeks, I learned a lot that I was able to apply the third week, the fourth week, the fifth week, the sixth week, the seventh week. So that first week, I didn't win, but I created some building blocks, made a couple of mistakes and was able to say, okay, here's some things that I wish I had done differently let me learn from those and incorporate them in. And so if you can keep building week to week like that on a on a specific structure for a specific set of tourneys or type of tourneys, that can help you quite a bit. So at this point in the week, I have thought through the games. I've watched the games that I've uh, I've watched the games from last week. I've thought through this week's games. I have read the matchups. I have read the NFL Edge. I have pulled out the players from each game in some sort of structured order that helps me to understand. Where I value these players. Sometimes I'll make a little little note like this guy's a blue chip or this guy is a potential light blue. But I'm going game if I'm going game by game, I don't necessarily know for sure. So this week, for example, I was reading the Jaguars write-up and James Robinson was standing out to me. And I marked him down. And then as I started thinking through my player pool from there, it was like, okay, where does he fit? Well, he's probably not a blue chip because of these reasons, but he's potentially a light blue chip, so I mark him down as that. And there's flexibility to still change that based on new factors that come into my head or across my eyes throughout the rest of the week. Again, we're still just gathering information at this point. So at this point, I have my player pool. I have the players that i pulled out of these games. There's still freedom to add new guys in if I come up with new strategy thoughts or new ways to play things. There might be other players from game environments that end up on my rosters that aren't in this strict player pool, but I know the individual players who stood out to me. I have them all listed, I have them all grouped together, and I can pull them in. And for me, you guys know this from reading the player grid, I have very specific categories. So for me, it's like, okay, here's the blue chip guys. It used to be tier one, two, and three. We improved it last year, but it's like, here are the blue chip guys. Here's my list of all the players from all the games. Let me think through where these guys fit. Okay, I've got five quarterbacks. They're not all blue chips. So comparing these quarterbacks against each other, who goes where? Okay, this guy's a blue chip. This guy's a light blue. This guy belongs in a build-around spot. And this guy is sort of a, what, what we call the bonus play, which would have previously been the tier three plays doesn't have to be permanent at this point. This doesn't have to be where everybody's going to end up when it's all said and done. But I now have all all the quarterbacks I've pulled, all the running backs I've pulled, all the wide receivers I've pulled, and I'm able to get a sense of where they all fit. I have the three Bengals wide receivers listed attached to Dalvin Cook, so I know that I'm not isolating those guys and just trying to play them randomly on a roster. They're not going into any of these categories. They're just being attached to Dalvin Cook in the blue chip category or the light blue category. I'm also, of course, as I go through the NFL edge, pulling out the game environments that I like. So sometimes it might be I just, I pull out a game environment and then I list the different players from that game environment that I'd be focused on from a starting point, but also understanding, hey, I might branch out from there. The example from that wildcat win of when I had the, I was betting on the Jaguars wide receivers but I was also betting on the game environment. That's why I was betting on the Jaguars wide receivers. So I pulled them out. It was a game environment bet. Here were the Jaguars wide receivers. That's who I was betting on. But because I was betting on them, I had a few rosters that hedged against that with the, with the Leonard Fournette play. And though that ended up being the roster that took down the tournament. Not because I wanted to play Leonard Fournette, but because I was betting on this game environment Betting on these wide receivers and then creating a few rosters that hedged against what would happen if these wide receivers failed. So that's where the game environment stuff can become super valuable is when you're saying, okay, I'm not isolating individual players just yet, still collecting information, still figuring out what this is all going to look like. I don't need to make any decisions yet. It's still Thursday, it's still Friday. Here are my game environment bets. Here's the players that I'd be focused on based on how I see this game playing out. Here's maybe a couple notes on other ways this game could play out and the players that I might want to focus on there. If you're playing three entry, that's different than if you're playing 20 rosters, right? If you're playing 20 rosters, you might say, hey, I'm gonna build 12 rosters around this game. And three of them are going to account for what happens if I'm totally wrong about this game. If you're just building three rosters, you might say, okay, two of them are gonna focus on this game and they're both gonna focus on likeliest scenario for this game. So, okay, I've done all this. Optimally, this would be the first time that I'm really digging into pricing, and this is where I go bottom up. So I'm going to go into the DraftKings app, and I'm going to start from the bottom at quarterback and move my way up. And I'm going to find the players who I've already read. I'm not just blindly jumping into the app on Monday and and saying, who do I like? I've already thought through the games. I've already read the matchups tab in the NFL Edge. I've already read the game write-ups in the NFL edge. I've already pulled players from all these games and fit them into, pulled players from all these games and then been able to compare all these players from all these different games to figure out who fits into what category. Who looks like a blue chip at this point in the week? Who looks like a light blue chip? Who looks like a player who's a tier three, a bonus play, a play who, I'm not really focused on them, but I still like, That play and who's just part of the game environment bets. I now have things categorized and then I can go bottom up and see, oh, here's this quarterback that I highlighted. He's cheaper than I expected him to be. So he fits in the bottom up build. He fits in this sort of value pool. Then I go by running back, go from the bottom up. Oh, well, here's a player who's not really in my player pool but I was kind of on the fringe with him and he's significantly lower priced than I expect him to be. He's 4,800 and I figured he was gonna be 6K. So let me consider him now. Let me add him to the player pool. Then you go over to wide receiver. You go from the bottom up, same thing. You're not looking for guys who you say, oh, wow, this guy's lower priced than I thought. Maybe he has a good game, right? You've already thought through all the games, the game environment, the likelihood of these things. Every once in a while, something will pop up to you that makes you rethink how you feel about a player based on pricing. But optimally, what you end up doing is just finding guys who you've already considered and you get greater clarity. Maybe they were fringe guys for your player pool and now that you see how cheap they are, they get added to the player pool with an understanding of why they're being added. Not that they suddenly became a better play or suddenly had a higher likelihood of a great raw score, but just that because of their pricing, they make sense now for your player pool. They might unlock some other things and they were kind of on the fringe so there's still a guy who fits. So I do that at every position and now at this point, I have a great sense of what the slate looks like as a whole. The last piece for me there is going bottom up on defense, which also helps me to think through, I've already thought through all the games and this is where I start saying, okay, so here's some of the defenses that work from a value standpoint and then here are some of the defenses that work from a standpoint of It's a lot easier to win a tournament if you get 20, 25, 30 points from your defense. A lot easier to win a tournament because that can make up for a huge mistake in another area. So I'm getting a sense of who the, the, the cheaper defenses are that have a shot at 10 points, 12 points, and maybe you get lucky and they get more than that. But I'm also getting a sense of who are the defenses who might have potential not to get me like a sure bet for 12 or 14 points. Like you can't pay up for a defense just because you feel pretty rock solid about the points they're, they're going to get you. But the defense is that you can say, yeah, like this could actually be the type of spot where a bunch of sacks, a bunch of turnovers, you know, just, they just totally dominate this quarterback and this offense in such a way that there's a chance that they could get me those 20 plus points that can make an enormous difference for my week. So now at this point, I feel incredibly good about my player pool and the sharpness of this player pool. And it's from there that I can start figuring out what ownership looks like and what the strategies are around this player pool. So I'm not looking at ownership and saying, oh, here's a low-owned guy. Maybe he has a big game. Instead, I'm finding pieces from my player pool that are low owned. I'm finding pieces from my player pool that are high owned, but I might have some sort of setup for them that allows me to effectively lower their ownership because if they succeed, there's a second piece that I can get from that game or a second and third piece I can get from that game that's likely to also succeed. And then I get those extra points and, and I'm doing something different than everybody else is going to be doing and playing this guy. So it's at this point that I can look at ownership I can start looking at how these pieces fit together on a roster. I can start thinking more deeply about unique ways to piece players together. We had that situation with the Titans last year where we realized that five of Derrick Henry's last eight blow-up games had been in Titans blow-up games where Tannehill and one of his pass catchers also had a big game. So that's where you can start finding things like that. You can start saying, okay, if I play this guy, what's a unique way I can play him? What's a way that I can put him on this roster? In such a way that I gain a bigger edge on the field if he has his big game. That is to say, a bigger edge than just the points scored. Because a huge game from a 20% owned player, maybe you can't win the tournament without that guy. If a player gets you 50 points and nobody else on that week gets, you, gets even 30 points. There are weeks like that where one player on the slate gets 50 points. Nobody else on the slate gets even 30 points there's a pretty good chance that that 50-point player is going to be on the winning roster that week. But if that player is 20% owned, simply having him doesn't really give you a shot at first place. It gives you a great shot at cashing, but who cares about that? So you can start looking for those ways to say, okay, this guy is one of these guys with 40, 50-point potential. He's one of these guys who might be required in order to win a tournament this week, but he's not going to be the reason I win a tournament this week. So is there a way that I can package this guy in such a way that getting these points actually gets me other points from this same game that other people are missing? And so it's at this point, and, and again, we throughout this whole process, there's been a lot of things we've talked about that go into roster construction, that go into thinking through these games and how the pieces fit together and the different strategies that we can approach things with. But for me, I'm not starting to put all of that together until Friday, Saturday, I've got my player pool drilled in and I feel great about my player pool because of all the things that went into the prep and and organization and creation of this and the process that I had behind it. And from there, then I'm able to start saying, okay, and how do I put all these pieces together in such a way that I gain an edge on the field, not just from having a really sharp player pool, but from building around this sharp player pool in a really sharp manner. So that's how I go through my week. It's not important that you do things the same way I do things. What is important is that you find a way that works for you to go through the week and that can be consistent and that can be consistent toward attacking first place in the specific tournaments that you've decided to focus on and build toward. So take all of that, find what from that helps you in your own process and in your own ability to build toward a sharp player pool for yourself, a player pool that you feel strong and confident in as you head into the week and recognize that you don't need to make decisions till the end of the week. Ownership projections really aren't that accurate until Saturday anyway. So if you're going to leverage now in smaller field stuff, just having a smaller field, three entry, just having a sense of who's popular, who's unpopular is good enough and you can have a sense of that without ever looking at ownership projections. That's why... For so long as a single entry player, I didn't use ownership projections at all. i talked about, I played the game changer every week. I flipped through basically all the rosters every week to get a sense of what everybody else in that tournament was doing. And so heading into each week, I I knew intuitively who was going to be popular, who was going to be overlooked, and how I could build around those elements to sort of outmaneuver that field. If you're trying to beat 10,000 rosters, or especially 20,000, 25,000, 50,000 rosters, ownership is going to be pretty critical for you to have a sharp understanding of where ownership is going and what you want to do as a result of that, how you want to build around your high-owned guys to effectively lower your ownership of those high-owned guys, Uh, how you want to gain leverage on a high-owned guy and say, okay, so if this high-owned guy fails, well, here's somebody who was maybe on the fringe of my player pool But there's still a sharp play and there's this alternate game scenario here where if this guy fails, it actually pretty directly means that this guy is succeeding and kind of use that last day, day and a half of the week, two days of the week, whatever it is to start messing around with all these strategy angles, all the different ways that the pieces can fit together and how you can find an edge on the field for that week, knowing that you're already playing around with good plays no matter what knowing that you have guys who are capable of putting up good scores, that you're not just shooting from the hip based on, oh, hey, this guy's low-owned, maybe he has a good game, this guy's cheap, maybe he has a good game. You're not just taking eight players from nine different games. You're building with with a very clear thought process in mind that gave you this sharp player pool and the games that you think can blow up and how the pieces all fit together and then what the field is doing and how you can outmaneuver them from there. So with that, I'm going to get out of here. I will see you, well, probably I'll see you in the Zandemir and Hilo's Inner Circle segment on Saturday. I plan to pop in there and ask some questions. And I'll see you in Inner Circle next week, and I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.